0: Benchmarking, it's the heart and the soul of a transfer pricing analysis, and given the rapid changing of business models and disruptions from COVID, benchmarking as we know it is changing. And that's just before you even get to the technology part. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Deep Dive Transfer Pricing Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello, and we're talking about the future of benchmarking. Joining us today is Cross Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song to discuss her white paper, Benchmarking's Bold New Future. You can find that white paper... At xbs.ai. And speaking of being so credentialed that your opinion matters to many people and you can write about it, and people will respect what you have to say because you have three very fancy letters next to your name, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words throughout the course of today's show. Send all three to the Fiona Show at XPS.ai. Again, that's the Fiona Show at XPS. Now, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Your first car, your first home purchase, your first love, it's hard to forget those monumental firsts. Mongolia is having a first of its own, its first transfer pricing assessment. So who is the lucky recipient? a mining company strapped with a $228 million tax bill and denial of $1.5 billion in loss carry forwards. Talk about starting strong. The OECD and other international organizations have been working with the Mongolian Tax Administration since 2019 to beef up its tax collections from the extractive sector, an area that contributed 80% of Mongolia's exports and 24% of its tax revenue in 2019. The OECD considers the assessment a, quote, Significant milestone and step forward. When it comes to EU public country by country reporting, it's a matter of when, not if. The European Commission for Financial Stability, Financial Services and Capital Markets Commissioner, Mariah McGuinness, recently announced new plans to require multinationals to disclose tax activity and payments per member state. A majority of EU members are on board, but not Ireland. The Irish see the proposal as a tax measure, which would require unanimous approval from finance ministers. But the EU has done its homework. The proposal was submitted through the EU's Competitiveness Council, meaning that it needs only a qualified majority vote to pass. A 20-year software battle comes to a hard stop. The Supreme Court of India recently ruled in favor of Engineering Analysis Center of Excellence regarding taxability of cross-border payments for resale or use of software. The case examined whether computer software end-user license agreements or distribution agreement payments count as royalty or business income For the non-resident taxpayer, the tax authority argued for royalties, saying that the Indian entity can use the intellectual property and copyright at its discretion and should incur a withholding tax as a result. On the flip side, the taxpayer argued that these transactions are part of the nature of the sale and that copyright is not licensed to the taxpayer. For Samsung Electronics, IBM India, Hewlett-Packard India, and 100 other software import countries, the legal victory is a sigh of relief. But they're not completely out of the woods. Tax authorities will be looking to make up deficits in other types of transactions. Just when you thought the coast was clear. Wait, wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai tp. That's xbs.ai tp. Mimi, it's the end of March. I think everyone's just getting over that feeling of deja vu one year later. Where's your head at one year into pandemic?
1: Well, I I guess the overall attitude I have is optimistic, right? I think, you know, there's a lot of optimism in the vaccination rollout and then the anticipation of everyone getting vaccinated and that we're finally going to have this somewhat under control. And by the way, the fact that, you know, my family is still smiling (laughs) after being cooped up in the house for a whole year together. Is 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 a good thing? I, we've all learned to be more patient with one another, and it's it's been great. I, I have to say. I mean, it's, it's sort of a forced life upon all of us, and we had to figure out how to adapt. But it really just shows the adaptability of, of people, and I look at it very positively. So I'm excited about what the future is going to hold. But and and I'm 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 just happy we we've all survived. Clearly, right? So. <laughs>
0: Yes, as with my network, staying safe and staying sane. Now, what have been the major interest areas of clients that you've found during the last year?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's important to note that a lot of people want to know how should we have been dealing with the impacts of COVID on our transfer pricing policies organizations. right? We've, We've talked about that before everyone wants to know if there's something that they should be proactively doing or how they potentially mitigate risk going forward and and that's the major concern the others are also exploring opportunities right given the diversification of the supply chain and just saying okay now that we've survived we've we've created new entities and new presences in different jurisdictions what do we need to do how do we need to address this and People, of course, are also talking about Pillar 1 or Pillar 2 initiatives, right, and just anticipating more tax reform, more global tax reform and changes in the future. Uh, So it's uh, going to be a fun year.
0: Yes, yes, so much to look forward to, including your new white paper. But before we dive into that, let's talk about benchmarking in transfer pricing generally. What are some of the challenges transfer pricing experts face today in terms of benchmarking?
1: So when we talk about benchmarking, right? keep in mind that it's not just profit-based benchmarking, but benchmarking for the application of all different types of transfer pricing methods. And, and many of the challenges are finding the right benchmarks, right? whether or not that's the application of a cup method. Hey, can you find the right cups or the application of a CPM-TNMM method? Am I finding the Functionally comparable companies. Am I controlling for all the different characteristics that need to be controlled for that could have an impact to the underlying profitability of these benchmarks, right? And so those are the main challenges that I think practitioners face in terms of benchmarking. And then layer on top of that, the localized preferences of, of different tax authorities and and jurisdictions. What are they looking for? What is what is important to them, right? Locally speaking, and that clearly becomes an area of concern, especially when taxpayers are getting audited and challenged in terms of the way that they're conducting business and whether or not the benchmarks are in fact comparable to their company's facts and circumstances.
0: And in your white paper, you focus on a transfer pricing sweet spot benchmarking. It's considered the most imperative, but also the most difficult part of a transfer pricing analysis. Why is this?
1: Well, I mean, it's extremely subjective, right? So benchmarking in and of itself, there are objective ways to approach it. But at the end of the day, there's a level of subjectivity that plays a role. I always (laughs) I always joke to say if you've put two different economists into two different rooms and give them exactly the same set of facts and circumstances, then ultimately, you could still come out with different benchmarks or different, you know they they could come out with two different sets of answers because there is a nuanced level of subjectivity when you're evaluating these third party comparables. And I think that that creates complexity, even though everything from a transfer pricing perspective, right? we we, we, we say this all the time. It is a facts and circumstances based exercise. And so it is based on the facts of the business, where you have operations, who's creating value. But then remember, there's there's that level of interpretation of the facts and what the actual value drivers are within the organization. If you're not clearly articulating to the audience or to the reader, I should say, right, where value is being created, then you're leaving that level of interpretation to the reader who could come out with a different conclusion of where value is being created, right? And consider that other methods are potentially applicable or that the comparables that you should use should be different. Right. So there's a lot of interpretation still when it comes to the transfer pricing analysis.
0: Backing up for a moment, I want to put a finer point on that subjectivity. Transfer pricing uses concrete formulas and data points, particularly in benchmarking analysis. So, where do we see the divide begin that can bring about two different interpretations of the same data from the taxpayer and the tax authority?
1: Well, I I think, number one, in terms of figuring out what data to use. And when I say that, let's say you're starting with the universe of potentially comparable companies, which is a set universe, right? Sort of the data is what it is, but nobody out there, right? At least practically speaking, nobody is reviewing every single company's description, like those millions of companies out there. And because nobody's looking at that level of detail, there's a level of subjectivity that even comes into play in terms of how am I going to create a universe of comparables that are specifically related to what I need to analyze? How do I make it digestible, right? How am I going to identify an incremental or digestible chunk of this data in order to apply my principle-based approach to isolate and identify the right characteristics that I'm trying to control for? right? And so even at the beginning, the initial layer has some subjectivity because a lot of practitioners have used SIC codes or NAICS codes, classification systems, which were not intended explicitly for transfer pricing purposes, right? So once again, you know, an economist might say or a practitioner might say, oh, I want this SIC code. And then, you know, another practitioner might actually say, oh, I think we should include this SAC code. And so even that initial level of slicing and dicing the universe of data, there is some subjectivity there, right?
0: And that will change the dimensions of outcome. I want to put an even finer point on what you mean by the subjectivity here, because obviously we work for a tech company that is bringing artificial intelligence to the benchmarking process. And we always associate artificial intelligence, even somewhat frequently around cross-border with a sense of being able to have a greater feeling of objectivity about the data that we're producing. How do you balance that out? Or how does that change your view of the subjectivity involved in benchmarking?
1: Yeah, so this this is where I think technology makes sense from a benchmarking perspective, which is, right, like instead of... We're, we're eliminating human error in some ways by being able to leverage pre-existing information. Now, I, I, I'm sure there are people that can make some arguments to say that, you know, from a development perspective, there's still some bias introduced in the underlying, you know, program. And that may be the case, but at least we're focused on creating technological enhancements and developments specifically for the subject area that we are trying to apply it to, right? It's, it's a transfer pricing application and evaluation of companies. And because it's specifically tailored to transfer pricing approaches, it's less subjective from an evaluation of all these universe of companies using a much more systematic approach, right? And it's much more efficient because you're not handcuffed by certain manual processes.
0: And how would you categorize the major differences between a traditional approach to benchmarking, sometimes what I call doing it by hand if it's not technically accurate, and a technological approach? Why does a traditional approach leave room for improvement?
1: Well, I think it's exactly what I was just saying. The classification codes are not specifically tailored for transfer pricing purposes. You know, technology doesn't get tired right? versus you and I as people. You read enough business descriptions of these third party companies and it all starts to blend together and your eyes might a little bit droopy at the end of the day. And then you also lose sight and lose focus on what is it that I'm looking for again? Because you start to read so many business descriptions and perhaps they start to deviate from the actual thing that you're trying to control for, or the, the actual function that you're trying to isolate, right? So this is why technology clearly has its benefits to digest larger sample sizes, to digest larger sets of information, to be able to help sift through noise when it comes to identification of third party comparable companies or transactions or things of that nature. And by the way, it's about being able to sort through larger data sets so at the end of the day, We have a much more refined and robust starting point.
0: So everyone knows there's a problem. It's just that nobody knows how to solve it, which seems like a popular refrain in 2021. In your professional opinion, do you believe that benchmarking has been given the attention it deserves from policymakers or what needs to change?
1: Well, I, I think most policy making bodies and governments understand that there is such subjectivity tied to the benchmarking process. And there's there are also administrative challenges. It can be extremely time consuming and expensive. A lot of multinationals out there, they don't have the time and the resources, number one, to be able to go and get the various databases themselves, right? It just it's not as cost efficient. So then they have to rely on third-party service providers to do benchmarking for them, right? And so when they do that, they still have to provide them with a certain level of information and then have their facts and circumstances interpreted in terms of the application of the right method in order to identify the right comparables. So there's a lot of hurdles, I think, in terms of you know the administrative requirements for managing the benchmarking process. So policymakers understanding this We're trying to help taxpayers understand, you know, what are they looking for, right? Like, we understand that it's a challenge. We want to try to make it easier for you. Here, let me just give you a sense of what we're looking for. And then at least give them, give both the taxpayers and the tax authorities, sort of this roadmap of what it is that makes sense from a benchmarking perspective, right? Because if everybody understands what characteristics should be controlled for, then everyone can hopefully get alignment, and it's going to become less of a burden for, you know, taxpayers and tax administrators. But I think it, it, it's not quite there yet. I mean, you know, Let's just take, for example, the the platform on collaboration of tax, right? There's a toolkit out there for developing countries. And those developing countries, that toolkit was really established to make sure that the tax authorities were well informed about what they should be looking for from a benchmarking perspective, right? And that level of education, I think, creates some complexity for the taxpayer because one of the characteristics to try to control for, clearly market conditions, right? Geographic market conditions. And so when that's part of the practical guidance in terms of what a developing country should look for, the trend I've seen is that then these developing countries are the ones that are more adamant about isolating and identifying local comparables, which then actually leads to a heavier administrative burden on the taxpayer. Right. So it's it's not really achieving perhaps what was intended behind some policy making body intention in terms of benchmarking and the guidance. It's created a little bit more rigidity or I would say introduced more difficulties, I think, from a taxpayer perspective. Right. But just so that, you know, other policy making bodies like the European Commission, they've addressed these challenges, benchmarking challenges, right? Like the EU Joint Transfer Pricing Forum definitely acknowledges that there are challenges related to benchmarking issues. The the level of data that's available to various taxpayers, the burden associated with access to various databases as well as the time and effort needed to do the right level of benchmarking. So I think policy making bodies acknowledge the challenges, but they're still sort of in this theoretical framework of, but here's ideally what you want to do, right? And so it's still in an ideological phase, if you will. And and I think that's what creates a lot of complexity for from a taxpayer perspective.
0: I hate to boil down that answer to maybe they concentrate on benchmarking too much, but maybe uh, much of our listeners probably feel that way, with with nuance, of course.
1: I I think so. I, I actually think that perhaps it's been given too much attention from policymakers, right? Like that they're only focusing on that benchmarking piece of it, or or they're looking at so many explicit dimensions for comparability that it's that it's that expression of like, hey, if you're focused on looking at these particular trees, you lose sight of the entire forest right? And in some ways, I do believe that it is an area where perhaps, you know, policymakers, while they should continue to give guidance to the various jurisdictions in terms of what type of benchmarking would be reliable for the assessment of the arms length principle, if you will, but still at the same time, you know, maybe they need to take a little bit of a step back and just understand it from a a practical perspective and and make sure that, you know, the context of the overall analysis is is framed better, right?
0: And interrupting for our first CPE code word and that code word is white paper, as in Mimi has a brand new white paper titled The Future of Benchmarking, up now on xbs.ai. Again, our first CPE code word is white paper. Back to our conversation. Benchmarking is already hard enough in developed countries, but it's even more difficult in developing countries to find comparables because of the lack of competition. How do you think that technology driven solutions will begin to level the playing field for jurisdictions across the world?
1: So it's hard to say explicitly, right, because just because we have advanced technological advancements in terms of the evaluation of data doesn't change the the universe of potential comparables, right? Based on your your first point here, that there is a lack of competition. There is a lack of companies operating in each of these different developing countries. And because there is already a lack of a starting point, technology can only help so much. However, with that being said, I think that technology can help with artificial intelligence, with this concept of natural language processing, there is a way to maybe evaluate all of that existing data, right? Restrict it to that particular market jurisdiction and then evaluate it more holistically and potentially identify companies that could actually be comparable, but may not have been identified using the traditional ways of doing benchmarking. This is how technology can help. But of course, the problem still will always exist of whether or not there's enough of a starting point to get there. But if we're to just think about it, practically speaking, if using today's traditional approaches, let's take a really small country like Kuwait, okay, let's just take that. And let's just pretend that there are only a 1000 companies operating in Kuwait. And that's probably not right. I'm not that's based on no specific information. I'm just In a vacuum, I'm guessing. Yes,
0: yes, in a vacuum. (laughs) We'll pretend it's true.
1: A thousand companies using traditional approaches, right? Maybe, maybe you will suck in about 20 of those companies and then you evaluate those 20 companies and find that none of them are comparable. But what if you were actually able to evaluate all 1,000 of those companies. Even 1,000 is, is a lot to be manually reviewed, right? Especially for one tiny jurisdiction like Kuwait, which may not be a significant part of the taxpayer's overall value chain, and, and yet it may be an important piece of that value chain, but it still perhaps requires that localized benchmarking to demonstrate that, in fact, their operations locally follow the arm's length principle. And so technology can help us evaluate all 1,000 companies perhaps even in less time than what the traditional approach might have resulted in in terms of the evaluation of just the 20 companies. And, And maybe we'll be able to find five comparables out of the, or five reasonably comparable companies out of that entire universe because we started with a larger sample size.
0: The struggle between human judgment and technology extends far beyond the offices of cross-border solutions, of course. I'm reminded here of the movie Miracle on the Hudson, where the hero, a pilot, is accused of human error that technology would have been able to solve. Where in transfer pricing do you think that human judgment, subjectivity, if you will, is critical to analyses and compliance?
1: I mean, I think it's still critical in terms of the guidance of what type of companies would be deemed comparable, right? Because you're still deploying the technology to be able to cast that net across the universe of companies and catch the right companies to come back, right? And so human subjectivity is still important in terms of the, first of all, the interpretation of the functional analysis and the facts and circumstances such that the human is saying, hey, these are the types of companies that we need to Compare right. These are the types of companies that that would be comparable, or these are the types of functions that we need to isolate for, right? And so that's the human judgment piece of it, and then the, the technology will be able to cast the net and pull back companies that the human says is relevant, right, based on these particular functions, risks, and assets.
0: We've spent a bit of time talking about technology, but your white paper is focused on the future of benchmarking, specifically the role of technology. How has technology revolutionized the benchmarking process?
1: Well, there's less guesswork. I mean, you're, not, you're telling the practitioner now, hey, now you just have to outline the facts and circumstances, identify the functions and risks, and you don't have to introduce subjectivity in terms of the classification codes that are relevant here. Right. And then, in addition to that, the technology in and of itself comes back with functionally comparable companies. And yes, there's a human element or, that you can review what the, the technology came back with. You can refine it using human subjectivity, but you don't have to. Because, in theory, you can say the technology identified functionally comparable companies based on these functions and risks that I've outlined. And you can still create a relatively large sample size, relatively speaking, that's going to be statistically relevant, right? And you can reduce that additional layer of subjectivity. But I, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, even as a transfer pricing practitioner myself, it's hard not to want to go and look at those specifically, right? <laughs> and like change a little bit here or there, I have to say, because, you know, Every company's facts and circumstances are nuanced, and so sometimes you, you need to just refine it a little bit, not, not too much. But like I said, I think the idea here is technology allows the user to eliminate that level or layer of subjectivity if, if they wanted to, right?
0: Many in transfer pricing love to say that transfer pricing itself is an art and a science. Do you think that technology holds the potential to make transfer pricing less of an art, less subjective, or maybe rather that technology can pose a obstacle to the art of transfer pricing?
1: Well, we we say transfer pricing is an art, not a science, right? And so in terms of the artistic interpretation, like transfer pricing will always have an interpretive element to it because a company's facts and circumstances are presented A, B, C, but you know there there's still an element of analysis that needs to happen that in terms of, okay, well, that company is doing those functions A, B, C, but how much does that contribute to the overall value chain? How much is, are those specific activities contributing to the organization as a whole. So there's still that artistic interpretation, if you will, that there's still a level of human subjectivity that is not necessarily programmable because it is based on experience right? with tax authorities. How are they gonna view the, these particular functions in light of all of the functions performed by every entity involved in this particular type of transaction? And but we're trying to eliminate a little bit of that subjectivity from just that benchmarking piece of it, so that there's less areas for the tax authorities to poke holes in, right. And like it's it's much easier for them to to look at a set of comparable companies and say, "I don't like this one. I don't like this one, right mm. <laughs> I, and 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 that's okay, right? And if you're if you're just playing that game and your tax authority is just poking holes in your comps and asking you to eliminate one or two of them that may not be as big of a deal if you have a meaningful sample size right if you have enough comps that sensitivity goes away but sometimes you will see practically speaking using traditional approaches to benchmarking the sample sizes are not that robust and that that I think becomes a challenge and that's another ancillary benefit here really to the technology
0: 100 percent a global pandemic a grim economic forecast feeling the squeeze an r&d tax credit can help lower your burn if you qualify the irs and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10 percent of your company's spend on development activities you can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red all you have to do is claim it Looking back over the course of your entire career that's going back to cross-border 1.0, the Bank of Tokyo, when did you know that AI was going to be a game changer in global tax, specifically in transfer pricing? Was there one incident or was it a steady implementation? How has it made your life easier, transfer pricing practitioner?
1: That's that's an interesting question because it actually I think it, it it happened when I was at the Bank of Tokyo and I will tell you a Japanese bank is not always the most technologically savvy. All right, so <laughs> when I joined the bank and that was in I think it was two thousand nine. I want to say I'm not a hundred percent sure. I don't remember, but when I joined the bank at that time, they did not even have they 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 still had a typewriter in the office and I asked the question I said oh is that typewriter how long has it been there has it been there for a while and and you know my my predecessor had explained he told me actually we stopped using that maybe two years ago and I was like what like I thought whoa that's that's crazy right a typewriter and mind you it it wasn't you know a deep mechanical typewriter where you have to push the button in deep which, you know, <laughs> it wasn't like that, but but still, it's a typewriter versus a word processor versus a computer, and, and they hadn't even deployed, you know, Microsoft 2000, you know? And, and it was, like I said, it was 2009, right? So, The whole point of this is to tell you that when I was at the bank, there was a point where we were looking at some of the internal operational processes as it relates to transfer pricing, right? And during that process of evaluating that, one of the CFO's challenges was, hey, robotics is being applied in fintech all around us. Let's evaluate how robotics, how AI, how these processes can become more efficient within our organization, right? Instead of using these antiquated processes, how can it be deployed efficiently? Because it's all about creating more systematic closed loop processes using technology and technological advances to eliminate human error. And the fact that, like I said, the context, a Japanese bank who is perhaps not as technologically savvy was exploring the application of robotics and the daily processes was, fascinating to me because i thought you know what this is something that many more organizations are probably looking at and trying to figure out how to deploy it because it is a meaningful way to eliminate human error not eliminate human jobs by the way it's just eliminating human error and some of the human redundancies right and and elevating the human responsibility, if you will, to much more of a strategic narrative as opposed to, you know, just purely processing.
0: Of course, of course. I'm reminded in that last exchange of Don's answer to a similar question I asked him in episode four of The Fiona Show talking about AI and his impetus for founding Cross-Border 2.0. Of course, the two are obviously intertwined, Uh, but over the course of your entire career going back that far how have you seen benchmarking evolve with or without technology
1: well i want to expand upon the last statement first before i answer that quickly matt when don first called me about cross-border version 2.0 and this was after i had already been talking to the cfo at mufg union bank just about how we're going to potentially employ robotics or evaluate the application of robotics within our own internal organization. I thought, oh my gosh, that's perfect. That's, that's amazing, right? To be able to deploy or to evaluate technology in a sector that I'm or in a subject area that I, I very much can appreciate and I, I know a lot about and then seeing that application on a global scale to all sorts of multinationals and I, I, I always I was very excited about it I should say right so anyways to answer your question about how have I seen benchmarking evolve, it's fascinating because there was a point where you know early in my career I was at some transfer pricing conference and now that's when I saw Dr. Enaldo Silva, he was on the day speaking about benchmarking and he had this radical thought, right? (laughs) He had a radical thought of, well it was radical at the time I should say, that hey, a distributor is a distributor is a distributor. And he had done all this analysis using empirical support to basically say the universe of comparables out there, you just look at all of them and it doesn't really matter. You're going to come out to reasonable ranges, right? So why are you doing all this specific analysis on the benchmarks? And why are you being so nitpicky about nuances about each of these different comparable companies? And I remember thinking, I wonder if this guy is actually reputable because I didn't know him at the time, right? Like I wasn't sure where he was coming from. And I thought that's a, that's a really radical idea, right? Cause everyone I knew within my circle of transfer pricing experts, they took that with a grain of salt and nobody, nobody latched onto that.
0: Right
1: now, you know, over time, I think that you do enough of these benchmarks and as a practitioner, just practically speaking, you're, you sort of expect to see certain ranges, right? You expect to see these certain companies. You expect to, you know, come out here and there. But benchmarking has actually gone the opposite way of that, which is much more nuanced, much more localized. Tax authorities are looking for much more comparability across all these different dimensions you know his empirical evidence of supporting that company as, distributor, as a distributor is a distributor is a distributor i think it is perhaps not what he might say today i don't know <laughs> i'd be i'd be i'd be curious as to where he stands on that now
0: Yes, yes. And we should note that Doctor Silva all these years later is a very reputable name across transfer pricing all over the world. He's yes. a dear friend of the show. We've had him on many times.
1: Absolutely. And
0: his appearances have led to our most popular episodes of the Fiona show, but I I get it not having the context at the time that that he was this reputable source. Shout out to Doctor Silva who's probably listening. On that note, it's time for our second CPE code word. Making it easy this episode, our second CPE code word is benchmarking, as in the title of Mimi's White Paper is The Future of Benchmarking. Again, our second CPE code word is benchmarking. Back to our conversation. What do you think still needs to happen to make benchmarking as effective as possible for both taxpayers and jurisdictions?
1: I think that taxpayers and tax authorities need to be able to deploy technology more effectively to the entire benchmarking process to create a little bit less subjectivity or to to introduce less subjectivity to the process. And I'm not just saying that from a biased perspective, because I, I'm part of an organization that has created technology that can help assist with that process. I think no matter what, Everyone is going to have to figure out how to better deploy the advances in technology that we have in existence today in order to keep up, right? I mean, we're talking about a a global economy that lives on the cloud. It's a digital economy. It's a global digital economy. Technology touches everything, right? And so why wouldn't it touch data? Why wouldn't it or why shouldn't it? evaluate data and help us understand the data better and there's so many tools out there that explore big data and you hear these buzzwords oh you know analytics on big data and things of that nature And why isn't that applicable in the transfer pricing space? I think it absolutely is applicable. I think data is the foundation of any good analysis. And so transfer pricing shouldn't be any different in that case.
0: For the OECD guidance, the evaluation of companies for benchmarking purposes is highly dependent on the quality of information available. How does technology add to the quality of information?
1: Well, I think it really, it ultimately helps to to, to streamline the information that is readily available, right? Or like to provide more access points to information. It's, you know, for example, a company's website. It may seem like a small thing, Matt, to be able to search for a company's website. But when you're talking about a Polish company and you don't read Polish and, and, and you have to figure out like how to find that company, it is time consuming. Right. And so even something easy like that, that's this is where artificial intelligence, this is can help to link up the right level of data to the user. And so that the user can create those efficiencies and not be bogged down wasting their time doing a Google search for one particular company for over an hour when they could have used that entire hour to evaluate a hundred companies, right?
0: And I know an emerging market in the digital space is companies that provide services like assessing the digitization of particular brands, the online presence of companies and how accessible they are to 21st century audiences. In your white paper, you highlight the minimum criteria for identifying good benchmarks. What are they and how do they play an important role both individually and collectively?
1: Well, I mean, minimum criteria, right? For any any benchmarking analysis, number one, you have to have data available, right? Like financial data has to be available. You could identify a really good comparable, but if there's no financial data available for you to do the economic analysis, then you can't really use that company in your benchmarking analysis, right? Now, the other piece of this is independence. Here's where data availability becomes a challenge as well. A lot of companies you end up seeing, a lot of companies operating in those smaller jurisdictions, they tend to be subsidiaries of larger multinationals and that becomes a problem, right? Why? We've we've talked about this before. Your competitors do not necessarily make good benchmarks and the subsidiaries of your competitors do not necessarily make good benchmarks either. And that is because they themselves are potentially susceptible to their own internal transfer pricing issues. And that is why you can't control for that. The subsidiary may not have audited financial statements, and therefore their own internal transfer prices could be messed up. Like, you know, if you were to, for example, if you were to use the subsidiary of Coca-Cola after they got a $3 billion annual assessment, right? And you were to rely on, you know, one of the Coca-Cola bottlers as your benchmark, Well, then you would have been wrong (laughs) because they're clearly been challenged, right? So that is why you don't look at subsidiaries of other companies. And that's why you're looking for a certain level of independence. And then functional comparability, of course. You want to be able to make sure that your third-party company is functionally comparable, that they're performing the same types of activities. You don't always need product comparability. That's not a minimum criteria. You, you But you do need functional comparability. You don't want to compare a manufacturer to a distributor, right? But those are the minimum criteria that you're really looking for.
0: And interrupting one third and final time for our final CPE code word. And that code word is foundation because we had a pretty gnarly conversation recorded about our mutual fandom between Mimi and I of the Isaac Asimov Foundation science fiction novels, but we had to cut it for length from today's episode. And honestly, I'm a little sad about it. Anyway, our third and final CPE code word is foundation. Back to our conversation. Now, how will digitization of the global economy impact benchmarking?
1: It's an interesting question, because I think that when we think about the digitalization of companies it's going to create opportunities to have companies operating in in many different jurisdictions right companies will be able to have a much broader reach to different customers but i think i think the impact will have to play itself out in terms of how we understand nexus and a taxable presence right and what constitutes a taxable presence so that i think is going to have to be the main factor that plays itself out before we understand if the digitalization of the economy is going to create an opportunity to enhance the number of potential comparables out there for benchmarking purposes right so we will see because if if it turns out that you know the the concept of a taxable presence no longer is restricted, which we we see this right in the whole addressing the digital economy work that the OECD is doing. If a taxable presence or a permanent establishment is, if the definition changes beyond just having a brick and mortar type of environment, then we are gonna see a lot more data become available and you are gonna see a lot more companies popping up in many more jurisdictions, right? that could have a significant impact to the entire benchmarking process in terms of the availability of data and the type of data that becomes available, right?
0: Of course, of course. And as we've discussed a few times through 2020 to 2021, how has COVID-19 affected benchmarking? And why is the traditional approach outdated when it comes to the current transfer pricing landscape?
1: So third-party companies, right, have clearly been impacted by the pandemic. All these different companies, and they've been impacted differently depending on government restrictions and things of that nature. And so when you know that there's a lot of volatility introduced in the marketplace, that's going to have an impact to the transfer pricing analysis. Because by the way, it could be based on a profitability based method or it could be based on a transaction based pricing method now in both cases COVID could have an impact and let's just take the profitability approach right now first okay from that perspective you will see companies with perhaps you know higher profits or higher losses and in and if that's the case much more volatility is introduced in terms of the arm's length range of profitability right and when you see that it becomes much more difficult to to justify your position, and so the company in and of themselves will have to make determination of, okay, is there an appropriate adjustment to be made to explain this profitability, or do we need to adjust the transfer price to meet this new level of profitability, right? To go up and down accordingly. Now, in terms of a transaction-based benchmark, right, Third party market prices. There's volatility there as well. Because even between when you talk about the pandemic environment, even between unrelated parties, the price points have shifted, right? They've even negotiated between themselves just to just to make sure that these companies survive on a long-term basis. So there's still some impacts there, even when we think about the application of a potential cup method. And so those need to be taken into consideration. And and then a company will also have to react similarly, hey, should we also or should we have adjusted our internal transfer prices to adjust for these market conditions, right? So there's definitely a lot of impact the pandemic has had to the benchmarks, right, for transfer pricing purposes. But you know, it is still the application. The application of the arm's length principle is still necessary. And and that's what we're looking at. And that's what we're focused on as practitioners.
0: And of course, some transfer pricing executives are hesitant about moving away from traditional benchmarking methods and moving into a technology-driven solution. What advice do you have for them?
1: I think bottom line, the results are better, not worse, number one, with a technology-driven solution, right? And you will be able to see that plainly by looking at the comparables that that come out. And the concept of the traditional principle-based approach to transfer pricing benchmarking, even within the regulations themselves, it talks about a deductive approach. And the traditional approach is a very deductive-based approach. It says, hey, how did you come to this answer based on your starting point, right? And if your starting point is much smaller, then it it makes sense. But there is something in the regs that actually talks about, and this is both in the OECD guidelines and various regulations, that talks about the fact that if you know of good comparables that exist, use them, right? Like, you can have this additive approach to the benchmarking process. It makes sense. And and if you have that level of knowledge, use it and it's publicly available. Use it, right? Like the only thing that you can't do is you can't be a tax authority and use your own private data that is secret that nobody has access to. That's not okay. But if you're a taxpayer and this data, you happen to know of competitors in your particular space operating in your jurisdiction and that data can be found reliably using third-party publicly available data sources, why wouldn't you rely on that, right? And so that is why we are able to more effectively identify better comparables using technology because you're starting with a much broader base, right? So why wouldn't you want to start a little bit broader, evaluate even more potentially comparable companies to come to a more statistically significant sample size is going to help you create reliable ranges that are less sensitive right, to challenges from the tax authority. That's, that's what I would say.
0: And just to underscore the sort of technology arms race going on here in your last answer, you mentioned private comparables. I'm reminded of the episodes we've done in the ATO, the CRA, the Canadian and Australian tax authorities, for those who don't appreciate abbreviations but their use of secret comparables as they get called as tax authorities just as much changes the game
1: oh absolutely i think it's very evident that many tax authorities are really starting to rely on technology and doing analysis on data more heavily right so they're evaluating ways on how to deploy technology in the tax base and so clearly taxpayers are going to have to keep up with that and understand what it is that they're doing so that they can mitigate the risk of a potential audit and or adjustment.
0: Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant. But then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. driven tax solutions there we go again i'm so sorry big you know what wait who am i kidding sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp Now comes for my favorite part of the show. One, Mimi is no stranger to, as we've mentioned many, many times in the close of our Fiona show episodes. But this is now our what we want to know rapid fire round of more personal questions, less career necessarily oriented questions, or transfer pricing necessarily oriented questions. Always question one, Mimi, are you ready? I'm ready. Question number two What can Emines learn from the pandemic?
1: A lot of M&Es can probably learn whether or not they can effectively deploy a remote workforce, right? So so some M&Es are going to be better suited than others to be able to operate remotely. But I think that's a a big learning point for a lot of companies out there right now, right?
0: When you're having a particularly challenging day, what's your ideal pick-me-up?
1: You know, I think my ideal pick-me-up is is a hug from my children.
0: <laughs> Especially now in quarantine. You yeah, I know. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I can. <laughs> I don't have to go into the classroom. Uh, it's a virtual classroom most of the day, I should say. So, yeah, no, that's that's always a great pick-me-up, right? Children, it doesn't matter what, what's happening at work. They They love you no matter what. Well, most of the time, yeah. I should say.
0: <laughs> yeah i i feel the same way about my significant other what's a quality you admire about yourself
1: i feel like i am resilient i feel like i i'm extremely resilient and adaptable and i think that served me well in my life so i i guess that's what i admire most of myself right if i can say that
0: <laughs> of course of course how do you think the pandemic has emphasized the importance of transfer pricing?
1: You know, I don't know if the pandemic has really highlighted that transfer pricing is that much more important. I think transfer pricing has already gotten its time in the sun with respect to the OECD's work on the BEPS action plan. And regardless of the pandemic, transfer pricing has been given its its respect I think from the tax authorities, right? And now with the pandemic, in mind, perhaps, or with the pandemic happening, what it's done is it's created just more opportunity, perhaps, for the tax authorities to look more closely or scrutinize transfer pricing policies more closely, because taxpayers have had to figure out how to react, right? And and that's changed the way that they've they've been dealing on an intercompany basis. So. I think it's given tax authorities opportunities. I think it has just highlighted risk uh, in terms of intercompany or intercountry dealings.
0: A question of particular concern to me as a musician, what's your favorite pump-up
1: song? <laughs> oh, well, it, I, I guess it depends on the circumstance, I have to say. Yeah, it, yeah, it does. Yeah, If we're talking about, like, girl power sort of, <laughs>
0: Yeah, go for it.
1: (laughs) Like like when I'm with my girlfriends and and we all just want to go dancing or something. And, you know, I I, I don't know. It might be Gwen Stefani, a holler back girl. I don't (laughs) know. (laughs) Yeah, Very happy. Okay. And and just love it. That's that's the song that pops in my head for now.
0: 100%. Is that the one that quotes Fiddler on the Roof?
1: I don't know, does it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's my ground zero for being a a theater kid. Yeah, I was in Fiddler on the Roof as a kid. <laughs> so I have and I was in like senior year of high school when that <laughs> album came out. So it, all of it has a, a very special place in my heart. We want to thank Mimi for being on this week's show. Thank you Mimi once again. We want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. If you haven't already, Please check out and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. There you can find the great family of cross-border solutions podcasts. That includes our Transfer Pricing in the News podcast, all of your transfer pricing reg changes, and headlines from across the world in under 10 minutes. That's the Fiona Show, hot off the press. We also have Fiona's R&D tax credit podcast, brand new, don't leave money on the table. Apply for your R&D tax credit today. And know how on this wonderful podcast. Some guy named Matthew DeMello hosted this show. We're still trying to track him down. Andrew O'Donnell edited this interview, largely engineered this episode. Matthew DeMello actually mastered this episode. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Marilyn Lynn strom is our executive producer. Listen here, everybody, we tell you every week, but we are getting dangerously, dangerously close to COVID being over. So stay safe, wear a mask, and maybe we'll see each other again very soon. Until next week, everyone, we'll catch you then.